You're listening to The Dworkin Report, and I'm your host, Scott Dworkin. Award-winning journalist and author Edward Isaac Dover joins us to shed light on his new book, Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Trump. Isaac spent the 2020 campaign on the road for The Atlantic after leaving his post as chief Washington correspondent for Politico. And you don't have to be a political junkie like me to take something away from his book, as you'll learn in this wide-ranging interview. For example, the advanced copy of his book made global news the moment it came out because he reported President Obama's private thoughts about his successor. But if you follow the news in democratic politics, you'll want to read this deeply detailed book about the start of the Biden-Harris ticket, the dramatic ups and downs of Senator Bernie Sanders' campaign, and how Democrats reacted to Hillary Clinton's 2016 loss by building activist networks. Oh, and, and yeah, Isaac Dover also spoke with President Biden early in the first 100 days of his presidency and included that material in the book. And he's going to share it with you in just a few minutes. Most importantly to me as a political activist, this book, Battle for the Soul, tells two stories. One, how President Biden defined himself within the campaign and produced a winning ticket. And two, it's a story of why Joe Biden is operating the most progressive administration since LBJ. The profundity of those two stories is that it is also the story of how Joe Biden unified an often fractious Democratic Party behind his progressive platform by working with his former rivals. But before we begin, I'd like to ask you to take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Anchor right now. Let's go inside Battle for the Soul. Take a listen. I'm here with Edward Isaac Dover, award-winning political journalist for The Atlantic and author of the new book, Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Trump. Thanks for joining me today. How are you, Isaac? I'm really well. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, your, your book is already causing a global stir for reporting on President Obama's candidly profane thoughts about the 45th president. Let's start with this. Uh, what made you decide to start a book about Democrats' campaigns for the 2020 presidential election all the way back in April of 2015, I think? And, and when did you start writing it? It was uh, not that far back. I, I wrote an article that published, uh, I started working on it after Trump won in 2016, and it ended up publishing the day before Trump's inauguration in 2017. Uh, and I was at Politico then, I ran a Politico magazine, it was called Democrats in the Wilderness. It tried to capture the kind of uh, crisis and desperation that was there for Democrats and saying, like, how do you get out of this hole that you're in? And, you know, there weren't a lot of signs for hope that they felt at that point. Uh, but uh, interestingly, even in that article, one of the things that I did was there was an interview that I did with Joe Biden in his office in the West Wing, uh, it was vice presidential office, and it was a week before Trump's inauguration. And, uh, and he started talking about how like Democrats haven't uh, had, had stopped talking to the people they needed to talk to and they lost the threat of it and that it was a really big problem. And he's going on and on and on. And I said to him, you know, this sounds like a stump speech. And he said, no, 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 no. It's not a stump speech. Well, maybe it's a stump speech for someone else. Right. Uh, that article came out, uh, and it generated a lot of interest. And there was initially um, somebody approached me about, oh, maybe you want to write a book about everything that went wrong for the Democratic Party to lead to 2016. And I said, look, I'm not really 
interested in like tracing the long history of this. And I, I think there's, some, but what I said was, I think there's something interesting now in the moment of what this is going to look like over these years. And I said, this is going to be an existential moment for the Democratic Party. It's obviously going to be one for the country overall. And I played around with a couple of ways to put that into book form. And finally, what happened was that none of it was really satisfying me in making it feel like it would be a, a tight enough narrative and really tell a good story, which I really wanted to do. Uh, by the spring of 2018, I looked at it and I said, oh, there are going to be like a dozen, maybe even 16. That was the number that I had landed on. I'd say, it won't be more than 16 Democratic candidates for president. And what was clear to me then, and not as clear as it became actually, was that these are interesting people who are running, just like interesting as human beings. Uh, and also that they were actually sort of all archetypes in one way or the other of things that the Democratic Party had to deal with. Uh, you had Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, two progressives, but very different types of progressives, very different approaches to progressivism. What was going to happen between the two of them? Would they both run? Would one run? Would the other run? Uh, how would that affect it, 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 the things on the progressive wing of the party? And also then how does the progressive wing of the party fit into the larger Democratic Party? Is it the majority? Is it where things are going? Was it going to be pushed to the side again like in 16? Uh, so there was that. There was the more traditionalist approach of Democrats, obviously, and by, by Biden at that point, his presidency is as we can get to maybe, is not living out that traditionalist Democratic thing quite as much. Uh, you know, uh, non-white candidates and Kamala Harris and Cory Booker and Julian Castro to a lesser extent, uh, and women who are rising up in more power in the party between Warren and Harris. And nobody was really taking Amy Klobuchar that seriously at that point. But uh, we, we, we thought that Kirsten Gillibrand was going to run. I think people were taking her more seriously getting in than they were taking Klobuchar first. Uh, a, a general Generational argument that was being made, right? Uh, that was at first embodied really more by Beto O'Rourke and then eventually by Pete Buttigieg. Uh, all those sorts of things that were really, really important going on in the Democratic Party, I saw could be told through the stories of what was uh, what was happening uh, with these people and with these campaigns. Well, now that you explained the beginning, I wanted to ask you something you quoted senior body campaign and White House advisor Mike Donilon is saying, the irony is even inside the definition Trump would like to set for the race, he is losing. In retrospect, do you believe that Joe Biden's framing of the race as someone maybe difficult to attack was a key to his ultimate success all along? I mean, I think that the moment that Biden arrived in as president is not one that he could have anticipated. Uh, and it wasn't what he got into the primary race thinking it was going to be. Uh, and, and yet <clears throat> it emerged and in the moment, obviously very much defined by the coronavirus and everything that came with it. Uh, but also defined by everything last summer with, uh, after George Floyd was killed. Uh, and, uh, and this has created, and again, it's the presidency that he wasn't quite expecting is the, the way to put it probably. Uh, I, I interviewed him for the book and the interview is at the end of the book. And you, one of the things that I said to him uh, was, you know, we, we, I've covered Biden a long time. So there's a, a little bit of a familiarity of a reporter and politician. And I said, look, I, I should tell you before we start, uh, we were playing around with a bunch of different names, uh, titles for the book. Uh, and what we finally landed on 
was Battle for the Soul. So that's the book is going to be called Battle for the Soul. And obviously that's from you. And Biden, I think most people don't realize, has this very sarcastic sense of humor, even when he's being very nice uh, still. So what I'm about to say that he said, he did, he was not being a jerk about it. It's just like how his humor is. So I said it, it would call it Battle for the Soul. And he said, yeah, the difference between you and me, pal, is I actually believe it. <laughs> and I said to him, no, I think you you may have been onto something in the end. Uh, and I think he was onto something in a way that he didn't anticipate and that I didn't anticipate and most people didn't anticipate. How much was going to be on the line in this election, right? Uh, what we talked about, the coronavirus, the public health crisis, the uh, rethinking how work and school uh, goes, uh, obviously the, the economic crisis and rethinking what that means to the country. Everything with George Floyd and uh, that followed uh, the the Black Lives Matter protests and and the racial reckoning we've been going on through uh, go, that we've been going through in the country, uh, the crisis of democracy that we are in and that has been obviously accentuated by the way that uh, former President Trump keeps uh, lying about what happened in the election uh, and and all of that lands in 2020 and it lands in the middle of this presidential campaign. And Biden, who most people did not think was in sync with where the party was, and ends up being in, in changing and evolving over the course of the campaign. And he changes, the moment changes, and they sync up. And that's what happens in this campaign. But the book tries to trace what happens. And I think if you go back and you look at Joe Biden, the way that I pick up his story in 2015 and into 2016 and 2017, uh, as he decides not to run in 2016 and as he's trying to figure out what to do in 2017, he is not in great shape as a candidate. He's not somebody that people thought would be. And among the people who was skeptical is Barack Obama. But Barack Obama is reflecting what a lot of people were saying at the time. Is he too old? Is he, he says, I'm rusty out on the trail. God knows how rusty Joe is, right? Uh, that's all going on. Right. And it's a great title for the book as well. What, you know, the, I think you wrote that uh, Democrats laughed at the kind of emotional battle for the soul of America theme of the campaign. Uh, what led you to write that people inside the party doubted it so much? Well, I mean, just watching how it was going. And by the way, the focus groups that, that Biden, uh, the Biden's campaign were doing um, were uh, were very much uh, showing that people were not into battle for the soul at first. Right. And we, Biden kept saying it and he kept saying it starts with Charlottesville. Right. And that's the seminal moment for him that changes it and says and it goes from thinking like Trump's bad. He's terrible. His politics are wrong. to thinking like the man needs to be removed from the White House. And he writes this essay he wrote in The Atlantic uh, that had this phrase, battle for the soul of the nation, right? Um, and my book is just battle for the soul because I think it's, it could sort of be like battles for the soul, right? Like the Democratic Party's soul, the country's soul. It's all of it playing out in this way. Uh, and then Biden, by the end of 2017, is saying to people as they report in the book, he's saying, look, Trump needs to go. I don't need to run for president, but I need him to lose. I, I won't run if I can be convinced that somebody else will, can beat him. But if I can't be convinced, then I'll run. Of course, it's a little bit self-serving in that as a politician. But um, but if you look at the way that the election went, there is an argument that he may have actually been right. Right? Um, not to say somebody else couldn't have won, but the way that that election went, yes, he won by 7 million votes in the popular vote. But look at 77,000 votes switching in four states. And the, the, that coalition that he built of suburban voters and 
didn't turn out as much of the black vote as he uh, was expected to, didn't turn out as much of the Latino vote um, or pull as much of the Latino vote, especially in a place like Florida, as uh, his campaign was hoping to. But it's a coalition that is a specifically Biden coalition. And if it had gone the other way in those couple of states, then Trump wins the Electoral College again. And I'm not sure what happens to the country, I should say, Scott, right? Like if roughly it's the same way, everything that happened last year, Biden wins by 7 million votes in the popular vote. But yet those like what would have happened? I'm not sure. It would have, I think, been a dangerous moment for the country. But it's not what happened. Biden won. Um, And one of the things that I get into the book also, is there's a story of a protest uh, a couple weeks after the election outside of the DNC headquarters uh, that a bunch of the uh, members of the squad, uh, three of the four, Ayanna Presley wasn't there, and a couple of the newer members uh, who just won, uh, Jamal Bowman, Mondaire Jones, and Cori Bush were all there. Uh, And it was a Green New Deal protest. And uh, Ilhan Omar is speaking, and she says, uh, that her district had the highest turnout in the whole country uh, in the election. So Ilhan Omar uh, says uh, that colleagues are saying to her, Ilhan, how did that happen? How did you get so many people to turn out? And she says to, to them, well, uh, you got to give people something to believe in and something to turn them out and make them feel that way. Now, look, Omar, it, importantly, uh, is in a district that was in Minnesota, right? That is a swing state. Uh, theoretically, Trump campaign really wanted to win that district. That's the district that George Floyd was killed in. That's a district, obviously, that Keith Ellison represented before he was attorney general. Uh, and uh, Omar, unlike, I think, a lot of, there are a lot of ideological candidates wherever you fall on the spectrum who don't get the operational side of politics right. She got more of that right in last year's election than many people were anticipating her doing. Canvassing program, door knocking. But still, yes, the turnout was higher in that campaign uh, than, or in that district than any other in the campaign. But the other thing that's true is that it also was the district with the highest drop-off between Democratic votes for president and Democratic votes for a House candidate. So people were turning out. They felt like they had something to believe in, but it was Biden. It was Biden that they were turning out. Now, some of that was probably anti-Trump, and some of it was probably that people vote for president more than, you know, they just don't get all the way down the ballot. But it's Biden. And that's something that, that I think Democrats have to wrap their heads around and figure out what that means and what it means for the future. Because that was true all over the country. He was running ahead of every Democratic candidate, basically, everywhere. Um, and, and the Biden brand turned out to be stronger than the Democratic brand, or at least the anti-Trump brand was stronger than the Democratic brand. Yeah, and as an anti-Trumper or whatever you want to call me, uh, resistor or whatever, uh, you know, I can say that we did not mold his campaign. We fell into their messaging. You know what I mean? We followed their messaging lead because it was so strong at the time. Um, obviously you also, I want to get this in here. You spent a lot of time reporting on the details of the book to mine gems, like delivering president Obama's private thoughts on Donald Trump as a corrupt motherfucker, as well as a fucking lunatic, a racist, sexist pig. Did you have to agree to publish this later to get those comments? And when did you think this material would all end up in an election book? Uh, so look, I was working on the book for four years, as I said, I'm not going to get into the sourcing conversations and what happened. Uh, there's a lot of reporting that happened there. Some of it was embargoed, some of it was just straight up reporting and things that, um, 
I, I wanted to build the book around. Uh, but I think those Obama comments, I, I don't think that most people thought that uh, Barack Obama was a Donald Trump voter before they read those comments, right? Um, and, and as a reporter, curses are good. Here's why. Because you know you're getting the unvarnished uh, speak, uh, the, the unvarnished thoughts of a person in their speech. Uh, nobody goes on TV as a politician. <laughs> you want to see Barack Obama on TV saying that corrupt motherfucker. But what I think the, the, was important about it and why I included it, it's not just uh, curses, whatever. I knew it was interesting. It's cursing. But let's take that corrupt motherfucker part. Why does he say that? He says that when he's watching news reports of Trump meeting with uh, the Russian ambassador in the Oval Office and having conversations with foreign leaders without aides on the phone. This is all way off of protocol. And Obama, like a lot of people, like a lot of Democrats, like a lot of Republicans, like a lot of Americans, like a lot of people around the world, like what is going on there? Now, Obama has a pretty good understanding of what the presidency entails, right? And he looks at me and he's like, he must be up to something, that corrupt motherfucker, right? Like, uh, and he doesn't, he's very careful to not be out in public saying this, giving fodder for Trump or uh, for Fox News or whatever to jump on. Uh, but it, these are thoughts that he's expressing to people. He's having conversations all the time, people. And I think the part of what the book gets at uh, that's important is that Obama was sort of cast as this, like he was detached and didn't care what happened to anything. He did care. He cared at least as a private citizen what was going on. And he also cared as a leader of the Democratic Party uh, that he admittedly did not want to be anymore. He was done. He, and, and uh, you know, I get into the book how at the end of his presidency, he's ready. Hillary Clinton's going to win and I'm gone. I'm going to go make some money and like relax and you know go kite surfing. Um, and uh, instead, all of a sudden, he has to uh, be involved in picking a DNC chair. He doesn't have to be involved, but he feels like Keith Ellison being DNC chair is a big problem for the party. So he inserts himself. And someone who spent some time talking to Obama says to me uh, in the book, uh, that he was like a father teaching uh, his kid how to ride a bike. And then he felt like, uh oh, and he puts his hand back on the seat, right, to stabilize it. And then by the end of the book, uh, uh, one of his big donors and a friend of his says to me, he feels like he can pass the torch. Like it's now he's ready to move on. Uh, but part of that process also, there's a lot in the book that has never been reported before about his conversations with all the Democratic candidates along the way, serving as this role like mentor, party elder, uh, elder, uh, a little bit of a therapist to Joe Biden. Um, and one of the most important parts of that, though, arguably the most important, aside from the conversations with Biden, is how he built up his relationship with Bernie Sanders. Right. And in 2016, he was really dismissive of Sanders, even when Sanders started doing well in primaries, whatever, I don't care. Um, and it was like, Bernie, you got to drop out. He called him from the golf course once. He was like, you got to go. Um, and in in the, the Trump years, he makes a concerted effort to meet with Sanders, to talk with them on the phone. Sanders has a very respectful relationship, uh, a re respectful feeling toward Obama. And it builds up this relationship that made there was open lines of communication constantly between them. Uh, and, uh, and, and it, that proved really important as the primary started to wrap up because Sanders was struggling with like, oh, do I drop out? What do I do? And, and Obama's on the phone with him talking through it. Now, Obama is losing patience with him because Sanders took a lot of time to do it, uh, but is working him through it and giving him a sounding board and pushing, 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 because Obama wants to make sure that there's not the division between Sanders and the Sanders supporters and the rest of the Democratic Party that obviously was there in 2016. Big problem for Hillary Clinton. He didn't want it there again. Couldn't let that be what led to 
Trump winning a second term. And I take the, you don't have to answer this question either, but the, I take the former president's no denial as confirmation that it's absolutely true. Uh, because he always <laughs> you've noticed that there's nobody who's saying like no he actually thought trump was fine nobody there's no <laughs> reggie there's nobody yeah so i mean like i would i would expect somebody being like you know miss jarrett or somebody coming out and being like that's not true uh so <laughs> that's yeah, just... and actually a moment in the book right where i talk about i talked to valerie jarrett and uh, you can see her quote in it that she says when they're on air force one but it's not technically air force one anymore taking off for after the inauguration uh, from Andrews Air Force Base for the last time. They're flying to California. And uh, and I said to her, so what did that feel like? And she said, well, like relaxation, like it's done, sense of accomplishment, but also a fear of what's coming next. Wow. Uh, your book ends, and, and I don't know how you fit this in there, but recounting the shock and horror of January 6th, Capitol Insurrection, uh, followed almost a month later with President Biden's first Oval Office interview, as you talk about the beginning of the interview. During those turbulent times, did you ever think that, that they might not come? And what stuck out to you the most about your visit to the White House on Groundhog's Day? Well, I should say that I, I spoke to Biden over the phone. It was still COVID time. Um, but um, uh, so I'll answer that question. Look, Biden, uh, there's a sense of confidence that he has as president that has come in uh, that I've, I picked up on in that interview and that uh, and, and and that other people who spent time talking to him have told me is there. Like, I did it. I'm here. This is a job I spent 50 years chasing and I'm here. Other Everybody said I couldn't win. And here I am. Um, and, uh, and that came through a lot in the conversation and you can see in the book, how he talks about how people wrote him off and thought he was, you know, old news and, and how he wasn't, uh, obviously, but also he talks through his own change of thinking. He (laughs) says to me at one point, you know, when I get out of here, I'm going to write a book about the fourth industrial revolution. (laughs) I was like, okay, Mr. President. (laughs) Um, as for how I, living through it, and I, I guess it's the best way to say it, Scott. Like the, the book, the book was supposed to be turned in. The final chapter was supposed to be turned in on January fourth, um, and I sent an email to my book editor that morning. Uh, I was turning in the book in chunks of chapters because we were on an accelerated time frame, and I said to him, "Look, let me hold back this last chapter. This is Georgia Senate races tomorrow. There's the certification of the election. It's going to be a lot of theater, but we got to account for it. I'll be in Wilmington with Biden and all that." And then uh, I was in conversation with the Biden folks about when to do the interview, and they'd said to me. Maybe the first week in January, we can get that all set up. Um, obviously, that week didn't go anything like what we were expecting. Um, and I was in Wilmington the day of the riot. And I ended up staying in Wilmington because I couldn't drive back to D.C. Because I was scared I wouldn't be able to get home because of the curfew that was put in place. Uh, it was a really difficult time. Obviously, for the country, it's a difficult time to be in the middle of covering this. Um, more difficult for my colleagues who were in the Capitol and you know fearing for their own lives. Uh, but... Um, as I'm walking into the Biden speech the day after the riot, I got an email from my editor that said, yeah, so our plan to bring this book out around the first hundred days, Mark, we're going to push everything back a couple of days or a couple of weeks uh, because you're going to need to write through this. And um, and I did. And, you know, so the last 50 pages of the book, which are really very present in what happened in the riot and the inauguration and all that stuff. I, that was it's beyond they weren't in the proposal for the book or in the outline of the book. They were not conceived of until after the book was supposed to be done. Um, but there they are. And there's a lot in there about them. Well, I'm I'm very grateful for your uh, 
hard work on on everything you did here. This is an amazing book. The book, it's titled uh, Battle for the Soul Inside the Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Trump. Um, it's a must read. We'll have a link in the episode's notes. Um, I really appreciate you joining me, Isaac. Edward Isaac Dever, I appreciate your time and, and thank you so much for everything you do. Well, Scott, thank you. And thanks for saying the kind words about the book. I, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I hope everybody will enjoy it. There, there's a lot in there and just a lot of things that I'll tell you as a reporter covering this day to day that as I was reporting the book, I was surprised by it. So I think that'll be true. hope that'll be true for, for everybody who reads it. And I don't say this every time, but it is a must read, like absolutely, like without a doubt. And so again, we'll send out links to that, um, but, but everybody's got to get it. No doubt. Like this is a must read for everybody. Um, so thank you again for joining us. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Scott. Very kind of you to say. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on anchor.fm and also give us a five-star rating when you can on Apple Podcasts. Thanks again to our guest, Edward Isaac Dover. Thanks again to our producer, the number one producer in the entire world for any podcast, Mr. Grant Stern. You can follow him at Grant Stern. You can visit our website, dwarkenreport.com, for more episodes. Thanks again for listening. Resistance forever. Onward!